You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. If you have your Bibles and the seat back in front of you, if you don't have one, that's our gift, so you can go ahead and take that with you. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, give you a couple minutes to take that. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. It's, uh, you wouldn't be here without a mom somewhere, so make sure you tell her how thank you. My wife Erin's with me today. We're expecting our first. I don't know if you, I guess she was here a little bit before, so we're excited about that. But First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, um, picking up where Pastor Jesse left off and uh, talking really in contrasting between God's way and humanity's way. The contrast between how God interacts and how humans interact with one another. Um, this is an incredibly divisive issue. But we've got a very segregated country right now in the midst of uh, this election season, in case you're wondering. It doesn't take much to get people's blood boiling uh, when they talk about one candidate or the other. Some people are angry because they don't like either candidate. They're just, I saw a funny meme uh, uh, from, what was it, Ace Ventura, the guy, when he got you know, two arrows in the leg, and he's screaming back and forth, and he can't decide who. And this morning, in no way am I trying to uh, endorse or detract from a candidate. That's not the point of this. But it amazes me during election season how people begin to endorse a candidate in the name of God, as if that's God's choice for presidency, or that's God's choice. Let me be very clear when I say this, that God does not endorse a candidate. Make concern people to hear that, but God doesn't vote on the president. God doesn't vote in that way. God doesn't have those sorts of things. We live in a society, and I want to introduce this concept to you, of right-handed versus left-handed power. Right-handed power is authoritarian. It has force that gives and gets a desired result. I use force as an authoritarian. And in election seasons, you see two different types of people trying to legislate power. But what you see ultimately is that legislation still cannot change the human heart. Now we use legislation, we use right-handed power, and we all do that. But there comes a point in our lives where right-handed power can no longer bring about the desired result. Let, let me explain it like this. How many relationships have uh, come to the place where they no longer are in unity with one another because of right-handed power? How many marriages are divorced because the husband is yelling so loud at the wife that finally she gives up? How many kids become embittered towards their parents because right-handed power only works if you can make the desired result, but it's ineffective when you care more about the person and the relationship than a result? Right-handed power cannot force relationships. They can't force relationship. And we see this sort of thing, unfortunately, has ripped apart families and spouses and kids and co-workers where you only, you know, it works at work when you're the boss. You can't speak back to the boss. If you do, what happens? You're done. It's just over. And right-handed power is the way that humanity works often. It's kind of our go-to. We, we move in that way. But God comes to humanity in something far different than a right-handed way. He comes, as Martin Luther calls it, left-handed power. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, picking up where Pastor Jesse spoke last week, uh, the scripture told us at the end of chapter 1 that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the weak to shame the strong, that God comes to humanity not trying to come in this real flashy way. He comes through weakness. Starting in chapter 2, verse 6, if you're there, say, oh me, oh my, oh something, just so I know you're, okay, all right, chapter Two verse six, the scripture says this: Yet among the mature, we impart a wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who do who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they did, they wouldn't have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, let's just unpack that for a moment because there's a lot of words, mature, impart wisdom. At this time, it, the, you know, the, the turn of that millennium, you have these, uh, this group of people that really influenced uh, the Greek thinking of Gnosticism, which was all about hidden secret wisdom, that if you could get this you know, enlightenment, if you will, then you would find out you know, what spirituality really was. And Paul is using almost this play on words of trying to talk about what God's wisdom really is. It's not some Gnostic, immaterialistic, you know, you've got to go into the ozone or into a trance to get it. He starts talking about that the wisdom of God is something that no one could see but was right in front of them, Jesus Christ. He's saying if they would have understood what wisdom really was, they would have never crucified Jesus. Verse 10 then goes on and says this, But these things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit, which is inside of him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart, that means we give this wisdom, not by just human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, spiritual truths with things that are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now there's a lot of words there, but essentially Paul is contrasting between the way that humanity works and the way that God works. And God works when he wants to come to us. It's not in a right-handed power. Humans, you need to change. Humans, get your act together. Start behaving properly. You don't understand. If not, I'm going to strike you with lightning. That's not the way that God interacts with humanity. God doesn't interact with us in this right-handed, you need to change. He comes to us in this left-handed way so that he comes to us in the form of a baby. The most innocent that has, you know, there's nothing. God doesn't come to us like a, like a war soldier. Think about that. God doesn't come to us with a sword in his hand and a six-pack on his stomach. And he's like, turn or burn. Like, I don't care how many church signs you see that on, that is not the way that God comes to humanity. God does not come to us with a turn and about face, change or else. God does not come to us with ultimatums. That's not the way that works. 
Right-handed power works as long as you can force something to get to the result, but it's ineffective when you care more about the relationship than the results. Left-handed power comes to us when it cares more about the relationship with the results, even if it ultimately means rejection. Even if it ultimately means rejection. Now, it's funny, the disciples, I'm just going to reference it in the book of Luke chapter 9, they absolutely are struggling because, honestly, if you look at the Old Testament, for the first couple thousand years, it appears that God really does interact with humanity on the basis of this right-handed power. It appears that way. You see that, you know, that God is uh, just very strong in his dealings. And the disciples, once the Messiah comes, we sang a song this morning that says that he is the lion and the lamb. And in a Jewish expectation of the Messiah, they're expecting the, this guy that's going to come to set everything right with a sword in his hand. You know, how many people know Jews are looking for the Messiah? Okay, so we're tracking Now, their expectation of the Messiah is that there's going to be, watch this, one human that comes and sets the world in order. And often, unfortunately, it sounds kind of like our expectation of political parties. Right? Okay. Sorry, it's too divisive for you. Just work, work with me here, all right? Our expectation is that one man or woman is going to come and set the world in order. That, that is the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. And the disciples now have Jesus who comes along and he is declaring he's the Messiah. And the disciples are like, this is great. We finally got the guy that's going to set everything right. And in Luke chapter 9, you see their misunderstanding of the way God interacts with humanity in three unique places. Number one, they're arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God and who's going to get to sit on the right side of your throne. So Jesus kind of overhears this conversation and goes, what are you guys arguing about? They're like, oh, we just want to know who's going to get to sit on your right, the right side of your throne. In other words, how are we going to lord over people? And Jesus rebukes them. And at a time he says to them, we're not like the Gentiles, the way the world thinks that we lord over. But spirituality is not about dominating people, but it's about serving people from below. Then the next thing, we see this very strange passage. The disciples are walking past And they see somebody trying to cast out a demon. They see this, people trying to cast out a demon. And the disciples stop them. And Jesus goes, why did you stop them? And they simply say, because they're not a part of us. Now, do you realize how crazy that is? Think about how controlling that is. That's like, you know, well, we're really upset that, you know, uh, another church is growing. Why? Because they're not us. So not only are we going to just, like, be upset at them, we're going to try to stop them. Now, what would that look like? I don't even know. How would you stop another church? Like, we're going to sabotage the church, right? We're just going to, like, we're spray paint it. We're going to lace it with just all kinds of crazy stuff. We're going to light it on fire. Whatever we can do to stop them. It's not just like this neutral, I don't like you. It's like, I'm actually antagonistic. And Jesus, again, rebukes them. He's like, if they're not against us, they're for us. And the next thing, just the next verse, the disciples go into this uh, town of Samaria. And they are trying to share the story that the Messiah has come. Watch this, that the Messiah is here. And people don't want to hear it. So now they go and they try to call fire down from heaven. Like, Could you imagine if Pastor Jesse would have got up this morning just for a few moments 
and would have just started to pray, like, Father, we thank you, and we pray that you would call fire down right now and consume, annihilate, burn this entire city and everyone that doesn't know you. Now, this is what the disciples are doing. Like, we don't think about that, but that's what they're doing. Like, they're, they're praying, like, fire, come down. And Jesus is like, what, what are you doing? And he makes this really interesting statement. He rebukes them, and it says, you do not know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy people, but to save them. Now, you don't know what spirit you're of. And what I find interesting is we contrast between God's way and humanity's way. Unfortunately, sometimes that we can mix the two of those together where we try to use God's name to endorse things that God has nothing to do with. So we start to push that on. Unfortunately, sometimes we can't separate our nationalism from our Christianity. We we can't separate the fact that I'm a Christian and an, an American all at the same time. And the truth is, I am first a Christian and secondarily an American. That would have been a decent time to shake your head or do something or touch your neighbor, poke, I don't care what you do. I am first a believer and then an American. Because in the kingdom of God, there is no Republican and there is no Democrat. That is not the premise of how God brings about change. God does not legislate change, nor does he legislate morality. He comes in a left-handed power to which if Jesus could look at the church today, he would rebuke us and say, you don't understand. You're trying to change people. Even in the name of God, we can mess this thing up. We can mess this thing up by looking at a person, I don't know if you've ever met anybody that's really, really religious, and I don't mean to pick on them, but unfortunately, at this point, Christians, it's almost like we have to unpack more for what we're not than who we actually are. Has anyone ever felt uncomfortable by that? You're like, I'm a Christian, but I'm not this, 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 or that. And you're like, well, what are you? And we spend more time unrolling what we're not for and who we don't look like rather than spending our lives saying, but this is who I am and this is what I'm for. Why? Because the scripture tells us that the wisdom of this age is contrary. And that if I'm going to be a Christian, I'll say like this, when's the last time your view of God didn't look like you? When's the last time that your view of God didn't look like you? That it didn't endorse and comfort everything you already have? When's the last time you saw something about God and you're like, oh man, I gotta change that. I don't like that. That doesn't feel right. And I'm not talking about the negative things. Watch this, because it's, it's easy for us to look at bad things in our life and be like, oh yeah. No, I'm talking about the place where you find your confidence, your security, your pride. And God comes to you and goes, mm, I want to touch something there. I want to change something. So we see these two hands of power. And the disciples are completely confused. Their expectation of the Messiah is that he'll come as a lion, roaring with power, wiping everybody out, and setting up Israel as a physical kingdom on this earth. And Jesus shows up, and he dies a death. He's crucified, killed. But in that death, something miraculous happens that God through his left-handed love, dies a right-handed death. God, through his left-handed love, laying down himself, is killed by people that think, if we can just get rid of this person. Now, this is the idea of, of the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, there's this wild thing. I, how many people right now, you have somebody in your life, that if you think, if I could just get rid of them, I'm not talking about kill them, this is not confession time. Right, we have that later. There's, we don't have a booth, but we'll find a time for it. 
How many people are you honestly have, be, being very real, if I could get rid of this person or this situation, life would be at peace? All right. Most of us, and some of us, it's too serious to lift our hand. We're like, <laughs> like just stretching. You know? You're like, no, you have that. Now, what's wild about this is this, the, the idea of the scapegoat is something that is broken in humanity. It's so twisted, so a part of us. Now, it doesn't, this is, this is the scary thing, and I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but it's true. Even if you get rid of that person, when I say get rid of, I'm not endorsing any illegal activity, going on record. But even if that person is no longer a part of the problem, have you noticed that the scapegoat or that person that's the problem is always present, they just have a different name and a different face? It's almost as if there's something in humanity that's unreconciled within ourselves that we're always frustrated at something. Somebody always has more than us. Somebody has something better than us. Somebody, if I could just get rid of this thing or get them out, then it would be fine. But what you see is that until you face the crisis of self and you recognize that this issue is actually not with them, it's with me. Uh, I was reading a book. Mike and I actually read it uh, together. And this, is, he, this author shares this fascinating thing. He talks about in Russia there was this people group called the Kuliks, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing their name. But during this uh, time, they, there was a, a political revolt, and they kind of put all of the issue on the Kuliks. They said, if we get rid of them, then we'll have peace in this country, very much like for, um, for, you know, for Hitler it was the Jew. If we could just get rid of the Jews, then everything would be okay. And in Russia, there was this people group called the Kuliks, and what's wild about it is at first it was just anybody that was kind of a wealthy farmer. So they killed them, they imprisoned them, they got rid of them, and they still recognized, we still got our problems. So what did they do? They expanded the definition of a Kulik. So then they killed some more, they imprisoned some more, and they're, because we have to have that thing, if I could just get rid of that, then it'll work. And at the end of that day, they ultimately expanded the definition so large that anybody that had more bread than you was considered a Kulik. Now, this is, it shows us that until I face the crisis of self, until I recognize that there's something unreconciled in my humanity, it's not a problem out there, it's a problem in here. And this is what human wisdom does is that we can find fault, watch this, not just with imperfect people, but we can find fault even with the perfect person, Jesus Christ. They found a reason to crucify him. If I could just get rid of this guy, everything would work. But God, in his ultimate wisdom, uses the abuse of right-handed power. The abuse of this as people kill and crucify, murder and torture him, And in doing so, the scripture tells us that God raises his son three days after the dead because death could not hold him. And now God extends to us. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever, like, had somebody that you got in a really serious argument with and now you're in a way better place in life with that than them and you just want to kind of prove it to them, force them, show them? Nobody. Y'all got the raw end of the deal. Okay. Sorry. We'll work through that for you later. Okay. Have you ever had something, and you can look at it and you go, wow, on the other side of that, they're stupid, I was right. Our natural tendency is to kind of come back at them with a right-handed power. Our natural thing is to extend that right hand, look, 
Let me, just show, let me just remind you. Let me show you that I'm in charge. And yet when Christ raises from the dead, he doesn't come back with right-handed power. He doesn't come back like, hey, you killed me. Let's wrestle. Let's go. Like, you know what I mean? Like some Superman, that like indestructible. Like there's no, there's no kryptonite can stop me. You crucified me. Let's rumble. Let's get this thing going. God doesn't come to humanity like that. In spite of a right-handed attempt to kill him, he raises from the dead. He awakes from the death. And then what does he come and do? He offers, this is wild, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is not the same. And I understand, um, I've got to be careful saying this. I know we sang the song that he paid our debt. And there is absolutely a part of God ransoming humanity. However, forgiveness of sins and the paying of a debt have a little bit of a different flavor. Jesus not only ransoms us as himself being the purchase price, if you want to say paid, but Jesus offers not payment to us. He offers forgiveness. That when God looks upon the world, every single person here, every single one of us, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I shouldn't have said ugly. I apologize about that. That wasn't the time for that. Morally righteous, morally unrighteous. If you are an adulterer, if you are an absolute drug addict that can't get your life together, if you are an alcoholic that continues to deny your problem, if you are the most self-righteous person, this is amazing. God does not come to you and say, turn or burn. He doesn't. That's crazy. God, God doesn't come to us and say, turn or burn. He doesn't come to us and say, change or else. He doesn't do those sorts of things. He comes to us and offers forgiveness, and then we ourselves either accept the, the, the best deal that you could ever work up, which is God does not treat us, as Psalms 103 says, according to our sins. So the God comes to you and he goes, I want to treat you like you're righteous, like you're holy, like you're perfect, that you're loved and accepted. That's how I want to interact with you. And then we either look at that and we go, that's the best news ever because the rest of this world does not work like that. I don't know if you've noticed that. The last time that you were in school and you messed up and you didn't come up and negotiate with the teacher and say, like, can I get a little bit better grade on that? Why? Maybe you're in a good mood. You know, something goes wrong in your relationship with your spouse. You're like, ah, just chalk that one off. Let's pretend it didn't happen. It's like, no, we live in a world of scorekeeping, of bookkeeping, of constantly evaluating metrics and systems. Am I right or am I wrong? And God comes to us with this crazy deal that most of the world won't accept because it's too silly in their mind. But God comes and just goes, hey, I love you, and you're in for free. You're like, hold on, what? Now, my, uh, my mother and father-in-law were in the mall, and they brought uh, my nephew to, they, they built this, this big playground, and um, it's like in the mall, and, I mean, really big, really great, and you, you walk down this, like, corridor. Notice I didn't say hallway, it's a corridor, okay? You walk down this thing, and as the kid just, just goes into, you know, just a panic as he sees these incredible toys, Incredible stuff. Then once you get there, like you're already in, like you can't walk back now. $7. Come on, you got a family of five? 
Now, th- this is how some people view this thing, though. They, they think that God kind of, it's like it's free to walk down the hallway. It's like as long as I'm walking, like everything's good. And then you get in, it's like, now let me tell you what the real price is. Now that you're here. That is a bunch of garbage and nonsense. You are saved by God's grace and you are sustained by his grace. It's not free on the entrance and then it costs you something when you get in. No, it is free from start to finish that God reconciles us to himself. Coming to a close here in just a minute. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, Pastor Jesse mentioned this. I love the passage. That we were hostile in our mind. Have you ever got into a conflict or an argument with somebody and they didn't know you were in a conflict and an argument with them? Do you ever get that? Come on, as Americans, we are masters of being passive aggressive. Like, I hate you. <laughs> right? Good to see you too. The moment the door closes, you're like, I can't stand. We are masters. And as Christians, we, we, need to, we need to be far better at this. But we are masters of being passive-aggressive. And you know, I don't, now, we avoid conflict, but have you ever taken the brave step of actually sitting down with a person that there's conflict, and you share it, and to your surprise, they're completely unaware of the issue? Anyone ever have that? Come on, you're, you're, you're I mean, you're hot. You're loaded. You're, you're ready to blow up, and you sit down with that person, and you explode to find them completely oblivious to actually what took place. And, and, you're, and, and then you are met with this dumbfounded look, and you can't be angry at a person that doesn't even know what's happening, and then you look like the idiot. Anyone? No, okay, the four of us. Everybody else is just so passive-aggressive. You're like, I don't have any problems. Life's great. Okay, sure. Shut up. Okay. (laughs) Can he say that with a mic? I did. So watch this. Colossians 1 says that we were hostile in mind. God reconciles us. This is exactly what Pastor Jesse said at the beginning of the message. That God welcomes us into his family, but I'm still hostile in mind. So I'm walking around with a conflict the thinking God has an issue with me. And I gotta take it out on it. And I gotta negotiate this thing. I gotta wrestle with it. I gotta do something. And when I actually show up and I talk to God about my issues, then God looks at me and goes, like, I don't, I, sorry, I don't have a problem. And you, but, ah! and you, but not, sorry, I'm not really aware of that conflict. I've already forgiven you in my son. Now listen, if you want to spend, this, and this is how most people spend their lives, unfortunately, if you want to spend your life walking around hostile in mind, thinking that God is angry at you, needs you to work for your salvation, your righteousness, your justification, and you walk around really angry all the time, and God needs to, I just, oh, if, if that's what you want to do that, then that's fine, but God is completely unaware of that because in his eyes, he has forgiven and saved, and this is scary to say it, the world. That doesn't mean the world, it doesn't mean every single person will be saved. No, because why? We are too stubborn, we're too stupid that we can't spot a good deal if it smacked us in the face. We don't like forgiveness because if we accept forgiveness, we have to offer it to other people and that's terrible. I don't want forgiveness because if I actually recognize that I need it, 
then I have to recognize that the person beside me needs it, and then I have to give it to them because I received it. So most of humanity will harden their hearts against forgiveness and try to prove their justification, prove their self-worth, prove their value, all the while God's looking at them and going, guys, just stop. You're never going to make your way up here. You're trying to climb a ladder to heaven. You couldn't reach it. You don't even know where it is. Right? But that's how we say, oh, I'm going to climb, because of why? Because I can show everybody how good I am, how perfect I am, how righteous, how deserving I am. And if I can get there, then why? Because if I can get there, then I can lord over the person beside me that can't. Yet God comes to us through this left-handed love. God doesn't ask us to approach him as a dictator. He doesn't ask us to approach him as a manager, as a boss, he comes and asks us to approach him as a father. As we close today, we're going to take communion together. And perhaps you've, um, you know, this is the first time in a church. You're not aware of what we do here, but uh, the other thing is if this is maybe your hundredth time in church, but you've always just kind of come someone dragged you to church using their right hand. Think about it. You got to get here. Why? Because it's good. And we force right-handed religion down people's throats until ultimately we resent it with everything in us. But this table, the Lord's table that is before us, is left-handed. It's not God forcing food down your throat. This morning, no one's going to force you. No, no one's going to make you do this. But th- this thing right here is the most humble act that you could ever do, if taken rightly. Because what you're saying is, God, you have something that I need. We, we sang a song, Lord, I need you. It's not, Lord, I have to have you or else. Is there repercussions to not accepting Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's not the lead-in thing that we charge the mountain with. The scripture tells us, though, that we don't take communion unworthily. Because if we do, we, we actually can drink judgment on ourselves. What? No, that's a strong word. That if I'm not taking this in receiving of God's grace, if I'm doing this just to manipulate God, then the very thing that, and not just the very thing, the only thing that can save me and forgive me becomes the very thing, the very last thing that condemns me. Like this, this I'm not saying we're, we're saved because we take communion today, but when I accept the finished work of Christ, it's, it's joy, it's peace, it's righteousness. But if I just take it for the sake of taking it this morning, then the only thing that can actually save us, it's almost like we say, I don't care about that thing either. I don't need that either. And we leave ourselves with nothing. Nothing to grab onto. But today, as we approach the Lord's table, I want to encourage you. First, there's no pressure. We're not going to come up one by one and point you out if you don't. That would be effective right-handed power. Right? If we put the, like, put the mic down... Are you ready for communion? (laughs) I am today. 
right? That, that's not what this is. What we're going to do this morning is I'm going to have the worship team come up if you, if you don't mind. We're going to begin to play a song. And then as you are ready, I want you to come and, and, and take the bread and the cup, very tiny cup, back to your seat and wait until we're all together. Until we're all able to do this. And listen, if, if you're at a place today where you're still wrestling with Christianity and trying to discover if this is for you, don't, don't, don't force yourself to take this. But if you're at a place where you realize today, Jesus, I'm tired of trying to make myself perfect and I'm going to accept the fact that you forgive me, that you accept me, then I want you to take this joyfully and glad because this is a, the best free deal ever. Forgiveness.